This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to speak with Dr. Bill Durston, someone we wished to get on the program last November when he was making a run for Dan Lundgren's congressional seat. Dr. Bill Durston's been active in Physicians for Social Responsibility. He's, uh, I believe, president of the local chapter here in Sacramento. And his recent essay in last week's Sacramento News and Review on the issues of uh, guns in our society is something we want to talk about to Dr. Durston about. Let's begin this show as we like to do it on this date in history, which is May 3rd. On this date, May 3rd, 1915, British Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, announces that Great Britain's three main enemies in World War I are Germany, Austria, and drink, after allegations that heavy drinking by munitions workers was slowing down the supply of arms to troops on the Western Front. Six years later, in 1921, West Virginia became the first state to impose a sales tax. Today, such taxes are almost universal among American states. On May 3, 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that deed covenants prohibiting the sale of real estate to African Americans or other minorities are legally unenforceable, which was Big of them, wouldn't you say? I find this to be an odd item because when I purchased my house, which I believe was built in 1951, the original deed covenant had to be signed among the myriad of other paperwork that uh, turns up at a title company. And right there in black and white was the covenant restricting me from selling my house to someone who was not of the white race. Of course, the guy in the title company, who's apparently been aware of the Supreme Court decision, said, oh yes, those are unenforceable. To his credit, though, he did acknowledge my shocked reaction to reading that. On May 3, 1989, Palestinian Liberation Organization leader Yasser Arafat states that the PLO charter calling for the destruction of Israel has been superseded by a declaration urging peaceful coexistence of the Palestinian and Israeli states. And uh, my personal favorite item among all those uh, citing May 3rd as this date in history uh, comes from 1939. On May 3rd, 1939, American singers Patty, Maxine, and Laverne Andrews, the Andrews sisters, recorded the Beer Barrel Polka for Decca Records. It became a major hit. Our joke of the day comes from a 2006 study which found that the average American walks about 900 miles a year. This is placed in conjunction with another study which found that Americans drink an average of 22 gallons of beer a year, which of course works out that Americans get about 41 miles to the gallon. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal Adlai Stevenson, former Illinois governor, who once said, My definition of a free society is a society where it is safe to be unpopular. And speaking of unpopular, our quip of the day comes from George 
Herbert Walker Bush, who said sometime back in the 90s, some reporters said I don't have any vision. I don't see that. And I can't resist noting at this point that as the war in Iraq moves into its fifth year, a lot of people are pointing out that perhaps George Herbert Walker Bush should have pulled out early. And yes, we're recycling that joke from the 1970s, which originally was Nixon's father should have pulled out early. And no, we're not going to explain that. Our statistic of the day comes from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which noted recently that electricity deregulation hasn't delivered the cost savings its advocates promised. In 2006, consumers in 17 states where electricity is deregulated paid 30% more for power than consumers in regulated states. And on next week's program, we're going to talk a little bit about some bright ideas people have to uh, take over the highways and byways of America and operate them for profit, which we think will turn America's highways into those of Bolivia in no time. But we have to analyze that one a little better for you on next week's show. All right, it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for Jimmy Buffett fans after scientists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that fruity alcoholic cocktails may be good for you. Adding ethanol to purees of blended fruit apparently raises their level of healthy antioxidants, according to the study. And no, this is not an endorsement from Radio Parallax to remain wasted away again in Margaritaville. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the Man of Steel after British geologists found a mineral in Serbia with the same chemical makeup as kryptonite, the fictional substance that renders Superman powerless. Yours truly is a bit skeptical of this item, having been an avid reader of Superman and action comics back in the 1960s, but it was noted in the movie Superman Returns, uh, a box uh, supposedly containing kryptonite was labeled sodium lithium boron silicate hydroxide. And it is in fact a mineral with those elements in it that was found in Serbia by those British geologists. And you can bet that the team that found this mineral was surely keen to name it kryptonite, but in fact, it contains no krypton. And those of you remembering your high school chemistry will no doubt recall that uh, nothing really contains krypton, argon, neon, helium, and the other noble gases, which just don't like to combine with other elements. You know, I bet if they looked really, really hard, they'd have been able to find a few atoms of krypton in those cracks inside that mineral. Darn. Because personally, I would really like to own a piece of kryptonite. You know, if anyone out there in the geology department here at UCD has an opinion on this, please send us an email at radioparallax.com. And we're guessing some kind of mass spectrometer could turn up some, some atoms of krypton. I mean, couldn't they? Because we're, we're guessing that every breath you take has a few atoms of krypton in it. Heck, the atmosphere is 1% argon. And dear listener, if you've just tuned in at this point, you're no doubt aware that you are listening to KDVS. 
And finally, last week was an ugly week for Catch-22s. After a North Carolina man attempting to pick up pants from a dry cleaner was arrested for not wearing any pants. Noted the magazine Kenneth Lee Wallen, now fully dressed, is free on $1,000 bail. This, of course, dear listener, gives us a chance to plug Joseph Heller's masterpiece, Catch-22. If you've never read it, you certainly should. For those who don't know, and and no doubt some of you don't, um, figuratively, a Catch-22 is any absurd arrangement that puts a person in a double bind. For example, you can't get a job without experience, but you can't get experience without a job. After thinking about it, we're not sure that this situation described is a true Catch-22. Admittedly, Kenneth Lee Wallen couldn't have clean pants till he got them back from the dry cleaner, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have to have any pants. We do distinguish between having unclean pants and no pants. And this story really hits home for us because one of us, and we won't specify which one, was once detained in a New Jersey laundromat (laughs) in his underwear as he was trying to wash his pants in good faith. No, this did not involve a proper arrest, but, you know, some pointed questions were asked, and that's all we're going to say on the subject, except that we were vindicated and charges were not pressed. And come to think of it, neither were the pants. And that's it for the good, the bad, and the ugly. do love the Week Magazine's Only in America section, and we have to cite this item from the current issue, where it notes that Daniel Lawrence, 23, of Texas, is suing Walmart for religious discrimination, claiming he was fired from his job as a night stalker simply for wearing a Muslim headdress, Catholic priest shirt, and a giant crucifix necklace, which his religion requires. In court this week, Lorenz told the judge he follows the universal belief system, a faith he founded himself in 2001. Walmart is arguing both that UBS is not a valid religion and that Lorenz was often seen outside work in normal clothing, a fact Lorenz ascribes to the, quote, ever-evolving nature of the universal belief system, unquote. And two items from the World at a Glance section that we find irresistible, are as follows. Last week, American Defense Secretary Robert Gates tried to persuade Russian leaders that an American plan to put missile defense components in Eastern Europe wasn't a threat to Russia. After meeting in Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin and Defense Minister Anatoly Serkyov, Gates said that Russia conceded that small-scale limited anti-missile system expected to be completed by 2013 wasn't a problem now. But, he said, they worried that it could be the first step toward a defense against Russian missiles. The U.S. says the system is designed to intercept a nuclear missile fired from Iran. Radio Parallax has it on good authority that during the negotiations, Gates at one point told Putin, hey, your shoe's untied. And from the Vatican, we have the following. The Catholic Church has all but abolished the concept of limbo. According to reports, a papal investigation that ended last week now finds that unbaptized babies might go straight to heaven. 
the, quote, International Theological Commission, unquote, said that while it doesn't have sure knowledge, it saw grounds for hope. Grace has priority over sin, the commission said, and the exclusion of innocent babies from heaven does not seem to reflect Christ's special love for the little ones. Which we here at Radio Parallax have to say, you know, does sound pretty authoritative. And we should remind our Catholic and, for that matter, non-Catholic listeners and, and lapsed Catholic listeners that limbo never was a part of official Catholic dogma. Medieval theologians conceived of limbo as a place just short of heaven where infant souls whose original sin hadn't been washed away with holy water could then dwell. We mentioned in last week's program that we would like to thank all of you who contributed to our annual pledge drive a couple weeks back, and by God, I think it's time we did exactly that. All right, in reverse order of the pledges as they came in, we would like to thank James H. of Sacramento, Lori J. of Lotus, California. Not sure where Lotus is, but thanks, Lori. Gerald D. of Sacramento, we would like to say thanks to you, especially because you were a high man in the contribution department. Our thanks go to Andy J. of Davis, Stephen Smith of Minneapolis, Minnesota, also Stuart G. of Sacramento, Nancy Y. of Sacramento, Jennifer D. of Davis. Thanks also to Stephen C. of Sacramento, Don D. of Davis, Mark Evans of Davis, Stephanie C. of Davis, and Kevin C. of Carmichael. But we're not done yet. Our thanks also go to James H. of Lake Isabella. I'm not sure where Lake Isabella is, so James, please send us an email so we can report on that. Henry G. A. of West Sacramento. Thanks to you, Henry. Andrew Bell of San Diego. Stephen V. of Brooklyn, New York. Norma D. of Fremont. And Jolaine M. from St. Helena. Thanks to all of you. And to Stephen A., who called during the Pledge Drive program, but somehow got confused and didn't manage to get his pledge in. We would like to mention one story related to our Pledge Drive, that of Sleepy Wilson, who assured us he was going to make a contribution, but in fact, welched on the deal. Not long after the conclusion of our annual Pledge Drive, Sleepy was struck and killed by a speeding bus. Coincidence? Well, we think so. But just to be sure, we would suggest that during next year's annual pledge drive, you too, please do your best to make a contribution. Don't be a Sleepy Wilson. But no, seriously, folks, not pledging doesn't uh, result in uh, you know divine retribution, although it certainly should. But in all seriousness, we are very grateful for your contributions. You make it work. You keep us on the air. You keep us going. And again, thank you all. And we hope that some of you managed to attend uh, the benefit uh, last week for the uh, Comic Press News, now known as the Humor Times. If you were there, you will know that uh, our favorite comedian, uh, America's foremost political comedian, Will Durst, killed I tell you, he had me when at, at Maryland's on K Street, he started out the set by pointing out that, boy, that K Street Mall renovation has really kicked in. Of course, if you don't, if you're not aware of the fact, uh, the K Street Mall, which used to be a vibrant, bustling commercial center of Sacramento, is now a ghost town at sundown. 
Thanks in no small part to the uh, enlightened management of the city fathers and mothers, the powers that be that, uh, that run the city of Sacramento. At any rate, Will Durst, funny guy. We hope to bring him on the show again, uh, you know, as the political circumstances evolve, which, of course, they always do. But all kidding around aside, we do want to thank you, all of you, for your contributions. Let's take a short break, and we'll come back and speak with Dr. Bill Durston about guns in America. And despite Mr. McMillan's objections, we will go out of this segment with Devo's Thanks to You. As mentioned at the top of the show, we are now going to speak with Dr. Bill Durston. Dr. Durston is an emergency room physician and is active with Physicians for Social Responsibility. We've been looking to have him on the show for some time, and we're glad that we can finally now say, Dr. Bill Durston, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks very much, Doug. I, I want to talk about your essay in the Sacramento News and Review. I know the issue of, uh, of gun control and what's, uh, what's been happening lately is, is something that's very important to you as an ER physician. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the gun violence and gun-related deaths and injuries in the United States has been described as a shameful epidemic by the past president of the American College of Emergency Physicians, and it's something I've been interested in for quite a while, uh, since my early days when I did a residency in emergency medicine in Fresno and saw a tremendous number of uh, civilian gunshot wounds there. Well, let's talk about how, how bad it is. I don't know if the average person realizes. I'm certainly expecting an emergency room to, to have injured people and people you know, in fights and things like that. Anyone that goes to medical training, I think, sort of gets, gets surprised at how bad it is out there in America. Can you, can you give our listeners some idea of what it's like on a Saturday night in terms of gun violence in America? Depends on which emergency department you're in, but in an urban trauma center emergency department, uh, it's not uncommon at all to see... Um, civilian gunshot wounds, um, or even multiple civilian gunshot wounds. Um, every year in the United States, uh, on average, approximately 30,000 U.S. civilians are killed by guns. And to put that in perspective, there were 3,000 people killed in the World Trade Center attacks. So every year, 10 times as many people in the United States are killed by guns 
as were killed during the September 11th terrorist attacks. Um, approximately 80 uh, civilians a day are killed by guns. And to, to make it worse, it's a particular problem in children. Children in the United States are killed by guns at a rate that is 12 times higher than the other leading 25 industrialized countries of the world. So it is indeed a serious uh, public health problem. That's the fatal injuries. There are probably at least two to three times that number non-fatal injuries as well, and many of those are devastating, the spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries, that type of thing. So it is an extremely serious uh, public health problem. Yeah, your your uh, your your essay in the News and Review cited the fact that uh, the Vietnam War lasted 11 years, yet here domestically every two years we see the same number of people killed from guns. That's right. There were about 56,000 U.S. soldiers killed during the entire 11-year Vietnam War. So at 30,000 a year, every two years, more U.S. civilians are killed than all the U.S. soldiers in the entire 11-year Vietnam War. Uh, Dr. Dr. Durston, you're, you're a Marine Corps combat veteran in Vietnam. You're a former expert marksman in the Marines. You know a thing or two about weaponry. Um, can you comment a little bit about, about the kind of weapons that are available here in the United States in terms of these assault w- weapons and things like that? You know, the uh, definition of an assault weapon um, is uh, well, it's debated, uh, but in California, an assault weapon is defined as uh, uh, a weapon that uh, pistol grip, so it can be fired from the hip, uh, typically has um, some type of device on the barrel, a shroud, so that it doesn't get too hot when you're firing multiple rounds. Fully automatic assault weapons have been banned in the United States for a long time, but with the semi-automatic assault weapons, um, with a quick trigger finger, people can fire off like five rounds per second. And also, assault weapons are usually defined by the size of their magazine, uh, how many rounds can be stored in a magazine. And magazines that store more than 10 rounds are banned in California. Assault weapons are the most deadly. Um, They're responsible for a fairly high percentage of police officers uh, being killed, but they're not the cause of the greatest number of firearm-related injuries and deaths. Handguns are by far the cause of the most number of firearm-related deaths of civilians in the United States. Handguns account for about somewhere between a third and a half of all firearms sold, but they account for about 80% of all the firearm-related deaths in the United States. Well, your essay talks about three myths that you hear. I mean, certainly gun control is talked about all the time, and of course now uh, with this recent shooting at Virginia Tech, it's in the news again. Can you go through uh, three of these myths that you described it about, uh, about you know, guns in America? Sure. You know, the first myth, and all three of these myths are really perpetuated by the gun lobby, and particularly the National Rifle Association. The one you hear frequently from the National Rifle Association is that the United States owes its freedom and its democratic form of government to an armed citizenry, the idea that that was the basis for the American Revolution. Well, in fact, a very... A very small percentage of the population owned firearms at the time of the American Revolution. Um, guns didn't work that well back in those days. They were expensive. Most people couldn't afford them, and they uh, were difficult to repair. Um, when the revolution started, we actually got most of our firearms from France. And after the revolution was over, uh, most of the people who had the guns had no further use for them and turned them back in. So we don't 
uh, owe our firearms to the fact that uh, the men who fought in the revolution retained their guns. We owe their our we don't owe our democracy to that. We owe our democracy to the fact that they retained their ideals after the revolution. Right. I I, I was also I was shocked here to uh, to see your quote from uh, the late Supreme Court Justice uh, Warren Burger about the second myth about about the wording in the Second Amendment. Uh, Warren Burger called it uh, called the interpretation of the NRA a fraud. That's right. Um, you know we hear over and over Second Amendment gun rights, and in fact. From political candidates during the 2004 presidential election, both President Bush and John Kerry said they support, quote, Second Amendment gun rights. What well, the full wording of the Second Amendment is a well regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the Supreme Court uh, has repeatedly interpreted that wording as meaning that the collective people, in other words, the people of the states have a right to maintain well-regulated militias, which are basically the state National Guards, not that each and every citizen has an unfettered right to own guns. And as you said, the late Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger said that the misrepresentation of the Second Amendment by the gun lobby was one of the greatest pieces of fraud on the American people that he had ever seen in his lifetime. And Warren Burger was not exactly a flaming liberal. No, he wasn't, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, ruled on one of these cases that was brought to the Second Amendment uh, where someone claimed that they should have their gun back uh, because of the Second Amendment. And uh, when the attorneys said, you know, according to the Constitution, uh, you know, this person has a right to own a gun, Warren Burger said, which Constitution are you speaking of? It's not the Constitution <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> Let's talk about myth number three, uh, that, that, that it's a good idea to have a gun in your home for protection. And if people take home anything from this program, I think that's the most important from a personal basis. The myth is, you know, honest citizens should have guns to protect them. Well, the fact is that guns in the home of honest citizens are much more likely to be used or to kill or injure somebody in the household than to protect against an attacker. One of the best studies on this subject was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, and that study showed that for every one time a gun in the home was used to kill an attacker, there were 43 gun-related deaths of household members. Most of those are suicides. Um, smaller percentage were homicides, where in a moment of anger, instead of somebody punching somebody and giving them a bloody nose, pulled out the gun and shot and killed them. And then the third category, of course, uh, is accidental deaths from accidental shootings. Well, Dr. Gerson, the devil is often in the details. A lot of people, would, would, after what's been happening in this country, would say we certainly need better and more controls. But um, how do we go about that? What would you like to see in terms of uh, legislation enacted to make us more like other nations? Well, you know, the general, uh, my general statement is that we should adopt the same types of sensible regulations that other countries that have a tiny fraction of the rate of gun-related deaths and injuries that we have uh, have already enacted. Those include licensing and registration. Uh, just like a car, you have to pass some sort of competency test uh, to get a license to have the gun and then register the gun. 
some uh, sort of proof that you have a, a reason to have a gun, and that's uh, the situation in Canada, for example, our neighbors to the north, where they have a much lower rate of gun-related deaths and injuries. Uh, I believe they actually require a letter from uh, some uh, friends or associates saying that uh, you know you're stable and have a have a reason to have a gun. Certainly, a ban on assault weapons that they have no legitimate uh, sporting purpose. Really, weapons of war. Exactly, yeah. they are weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Now, California still has its assault weapon bans in place, but uh, one of the few meaningful pieces of legislation passed by Congress was the assault weapons ban, uh, the federal government was the assault weapons ban that was enacted in 1994. They left that lapse in 2004. Certainly, we need a federal assault weapons ban. Even though in California we have the ban in place, assault weapons are easily transported uh, across state lines. Well, what about a national database? In the case of this Virginia Tech shooter, I mean, everyone, but everyone seemed to think this guy was a potential shooter. He had mental problems, and yet uh, the data, uh, which perhaps could have prevented him from, from getting a gun, was, was not effective. You're right. And that uh, brings up another uh, important piece of federal legislation, which was the Brady Act, which was also enacted in uh, 1994. And that requires a background check before sale of guns. Um, the uh, background checks and the criteria in the Brady Act are relatively weak compared to background checks in the law in California. And there's some question as to whether even under the Brady Act, um, the shooter in the Virginia Tech massacre should have been prevented. But the effectiveness of that instant background check depends on states uh, reporting in this case, when a patient is committed involuntarily uh, because of mental reasons, uh, reporting to the federal database. And uh, this particular very disturbed individual who had been committed involuntarily to uh, psychiatric care had not been reported. And there's some question as to whether he really should have been or not, whether he really met the uh, Brady criteria. But certainly uh, background checks for uh, firearm purchasers are necessary, and they're effective. Um, in the 10 years after the enactment of the Brady Act, even though it is somewhat weak, there was about a 28% decline uh, in firearm-related deaths uh, in our country. So we need uh, more stringent background checks. We need uh, better enforcement uh, of the background checks to make sure that the data is being reported uh, as required. We're talking to Dr. Bill Durston in regards to his essay in the Sacramento News and Review, It's the Guns. And hope this won't be your last appearance uh, on the program. Uh, I hope we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon. Thanks, Doug. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the program. Dr. Bill Durston is an emergency physician, and he was recently a candidate for office in the 3rd Congressional District here in California. As I say, we hope to get Dr. Durston on this program last November, and uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, in this case, it's better late than never. We think that uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility do a, a great job, and we... Uh, Plan to have a representative on this program in the future. And speaking of uh, insanity, nuclear and otherwise, uh, I was, uh, I guess, amused, for lack of a better word, at the um, report in yesterday's Sacramento Bee that the good people down at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory took a look and decided that if we cut down all the world's forests, this might help the global warming circumstance. This evidently was based on one of their computer models that, uh, from what I can read in the B, suggested that forests are absorbing heat and raising temperatures around the globe. 
you know, when I, when I walk in a forest, I usually observe that it's, that it's actually quite cool. So I'm wondering if this is a case of garbage in, garbage out down there at Lawrence Livermore. And by the way, these are the good people that, uh, that brought you some other good ideas in the past, including among them the hydrogen bomb. This might be a good point to comment uh, on um, an article, a review in the New Scientist magazine, the April 14th issue, on a couple books out on Albert Einstein. Reviewer Andrew Robinson took a look at uh, two books, Einstein on Politics, His Private Thoughts and Public Stands on Nationalism, Zionism, War, Peace, and the Bomb, edited by David Rowe and Robert Schulman, and also the recent book by Walter Isaacson titled Einstein, His Life and Universe. I want to quote a bit from the review. Uh, in, a, in a way, this is referring to, uh, I think, physicists for social responsibility. Noted the article. In February 1950, a few months after the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb, and just after President Truman announced that the U.S. would accelerate the production of a super, parentheses, hydrogen bomb, Albert Einstein went on nationwide U.S. television to drop his own bombshell. I never heard about this episode. Einstein went on American TV and said, If these efforts should prove successful, radioactive poisoning of the atmosphere, and hence annihilation of all life on Earth, will have been brought within the range of what is technically possible. Einstein also warned that, quote, tremendous financial power is being concentrated in the hands of the military. Youth is being militarized, and the loyalty of citizens, particularly civil servants, is carefully supervised by a police growing more powerful every day. Notes the article on the very next day, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, sent a top-secret memo to every FBI office in the country requesting any and all, quote, derogatory information, unquote, they had on Einstein. Hoover's efforts to prove that the world's most famous scientist was a communist sympathizer, perhaps even an atom spy, like the recently arrested Klaus Fuchs, and to have him deported from his adopted country would continue for the rest of Einstein's life. The article notes that uh, Einstein scholars and biographers have tended to downplay their subject's political activism in favor of his awe-inspiring scientific achievements and tumultuous personal life, but that uh, these recent books really delve into some of this, uh, and and it's high time someone did. And uh, speaking of a long overdue uh, look at something, we would like to again compliment Bill Moyers, one of our favorites on this program, for his current effort on PBS titled buying the war. In this multi-part uh, series, Bill Moyers takes a look back at the rather catastrophic failings of the United States media in the ramp-up to war uh, in Iraq to present a balanced view. As we've talked about many times in this program, the media in this country basically acted as a tool of the government in disseminating misinformation. Let me quote a bit from the special. Four years ago on May 1st, President Bush landed on the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln wearing a flight suit and delivered a speech in front of a giant mission-accomplished banner. He was hailed by media stars as a breakthrough example of presidential leadership in toppling Saddam Hussein. Despite profound questions over the failure to locate weapons of mass destruction and the increasing violence in Baghdad, many in the press confirmed the White House's claim that the war was won. MSNBC's Chris Matthews declared, we're all neocons now. NPR's Bob Edwards said, the war in Iraq is essentially over. And Fortune Magazine's Jeff Birnbaum said, it's amazing how thorough the victory in Iraq really was in the broadest context. 
Bill Moyers asked the question, how did the mainstream press get it so wrong? Said Moyers, what the conservative media did was easy to fathom. They'd been cheerleaders for the White House from the beginning and were simply continuing to rally the public behind the president, no questions asked. How mainstream journalists suspended skepticism and scrutiny remains an issue of significance that the media has not satisfactorily explored. And I think we have to play for you a rather amazing clip from the special. The occasion is a George W. Bush press conference which took place on March 6th, 2003, two weeks before the commencement of the war in Iraq. Moyers notes that at this point, the administration has been determined to link Iraq to 9-11 for months. Bush starts out noting that Iraq is part of the war on terror. Saddam Hussein and his weapons are a direct threat to this country. September the 11th, um, I should say to the American people that we're now a battlefield. At least a dozen times during this press conference, he will invoke 9-11 and Al-Qaeda to justify a preemptive attack on a country that has not attacked America. Mr. President, if you decide... But the White House press corps will ask no hard questions tonight about those claims. Listen to what the president says. This is a scripted... (laughs) Thank you, Mr. President. Scripted. Sure enough, the president's staff has given him a list of reporters to call on. Let's see here. Elizabeth. Gregory. April. Did you have a question, or did I call upon you cold? I have a question. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure you do have a question. He sort of giggled and laughed, and the reporters sort of laughed. I don't know if it was out embarrassment for him or embarrassment for them, because they still continued to play along. After his question was done, they all shot up their hands and pretended they had a chance of being called on. President, how is your faith guiding you? My faith uh, sustains me because I pray daily, I pray for guidance. I think it just crystallized what was wrong with the press coverage during the run-up to war. I think they felt like the war was gonna happen and they, the best thing for them to do was to get out of the way. Now you really have to see this video because in it, as Bush says, this is a scripted and he kind of nods down at the paper in front of him. Everyone laughs because, uh, well, he's admitting that he's going down a script. Did anyone call him on this back in, in, uh, in, in March of 2003? Well, no, they didn't. It, it's taken four years for Bill Moyers to put this out there. Bush is reading a script going down April. Did you have a question or, or did I call on you cold? And the reporter April answers, no, I have a question to laughter. B- Bush then responds, okay, I'm sure you do have a question. Well, yeah, I <laughs> mean, like... Why not nudge, nudge, wink, wink at the camera? Yeah, I'm sure that April has been given a question, a real hardball question. How is your faith guiding you, Mr. President? This administration has resorted to giving, you know, day pass credentials to a phony reporter to ask softball questions. Jeff Guckert, also known as Jeff Gannon, a male escort prostitute, who's sent in to ask softball questions. It is time to step back every so often and take a look at the Alice in Wonderland world of the current administration in Washington. Bill Moyers has done his usual excellent job, and we would refer you, dear listener, to his special on PBS, which we'll talk a little bit more about on next week's show. 
Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. It is only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard seat But wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me It is only a canvas sky Sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me Without your love It's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody played on a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me We are back. Let's talk a little bit about science here in our third and final segment. Uh, as always, it seems we need to rely upon New Scientist magazine, which we think is the world's best science magazine. Cover story from the April 7th issue, How Many Things Can You Do at Once? Subtitled, Our Flawed Talent for Multitasking, was a pretty interesting article. Article by Allison Motluck starts out, On her morning drive to work, Debbie drinks her coffee, eats her breakfast, checks her email, and chats with her mom, often all at once. She hates wasting time. She's an example of an elite species of human, multitaskers. They can juggle more activities in five minutes than our ancestors did in a day, or so they like to think. This debate about multitasking has come to a head worldwide over the cell phone while driving issue. We talked on last year's program about research done by David Strainer at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City who reported that people using cell phones drive no better than drunks. In another study, Strainer found that using a hands-free kit did not improve a driver's response time. So the upshot of the article, we may not be as good at multitasking as we think we are. Rene Maroy, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville, has, uh, has basically identified three bottlenecks in our multitasking process that kind of, uh, kind of negate the whole idea. The first one is that in simply identifying what we're looking at, it can take a few tenths of a second, during which time we're not able to see and recognize a second item. There was a dramatic study a few years back done on this where, where people were asked to concentrate on a basketball game, on the action, and during the videotape, a man dressed in a gorilla suit would walk in, look at the camera, and walk off the, off the scene. The participants who were asked to focus on some aspect of the game were then later asked if they noticed anything unusual. And no, apparently the man in the gorilla suit had failed to uh, register on their psyches. A second limitation in the human brain, our short-term visual memory. It's believed we can keep track of about four items at a time, fewer if they're complex. This is thought to explain our rather astonishing inability to detect even huge changes in scenes that are otherwise identical, so-called change blindness. And the third limitation, choosing a response to a stimulus also takes brain power. 
This uh, seems to indicate that uh, the California law that's going to make us all have headsets uh, next year is going to help, but even it's not going to be enough. Apparently just talking on a phone while driving uh, makes it the equivalent of drunk driving. Not a happy thought. The same issue of New Scientist also includes one of the, uh, one of the all-time great Hubble telescope photographs, which shows the light echo, an ever-expanding ring of light around a, uh, a nearby star, which apparently resulted from, as best scientists can determine, the star cannibalizing three planets that had been orbiting around it. A normal nova occurs when uh, a star accumulates a bunch of material by robbing it off another star orbiting around it, which it then blows off rather spectacularly and then begins reaccumulating material to blow it off again. But the process takes thousands of years. A supernova explosion is, uh, well, generally a one-way trip where the star is blown to smithereens. But uh, scientists noted in 2002 uh, something unusual with a star called V838 Mon. The star got brighter, dimmed, got brighter a couple months later, dimmed, got brighter a third time before dimming. This is not supposed to happen. After flaring up a third time, this star basically kind of went out of the visual range of uh, electromagnetic radiation and started radiating in the infrared. In fact, V838 Mon became so bright in the infrared that if your eyes were able to see in that wavelength, it would have been visible even in the daytime. Anyway, I recommend this article to you very highly, if nothing else. Uh, than for the Hubble photographs showing this ever-expanding ring of light as the explosion sent illumination out into the debris around this star and progressively illuminated it with an expanding ring moving out at the speed of light. I'm not sure I explained that well enough, but anyway, take a look at the picture. <laughs> Scientific explanation aside, it's a stunning piece of artwork. And speaking of space art, which is what NASA is calling it, uh, you need to go on the web and check out this photo taken by the space probe heading out to Pluto, the New Horizons spacecraft. It, it swept past Jupiter last February 28th and took this photograph over Jupiter's cloud tops showing the icy moon Europa rising, uh, rising on Jupiter. NASA, always, uh, always uh, conscious of public relations, said the image was taken, quote, primarily for artistic rather than scientific value. Scientists had earlier issued a public appeal via the Internet for ideas that would produce evocative artistic pictures during the Jupiter flyby. And if you'll check it out, you'll see that uh, they succeeded. And uh, this story about the, uh, the cat food and the pet food that was contaminated, uh, big recall here, a lot of uh, dead pets along the way, this is becoming a very strange story. On March 23rd, the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets announced they'd found rat poison in contaminated wheat gluten imported from China. But apparently other toxicologists uh, were not convinced that rat poison contamination was the end of the story. A week later, the FDA reported finding a widely used compound called melamine, described as a chemical used in the manufacture of plastics. It's apparently a, a byproduct of, uh, Chinese, of the Chinese petrochemical industry. So the question is, did people in China add this to the wheat gluten, add this as a food supplement? Stories have surfaced in the last couple days indicating uh, that they did exactly that, using this as a protein substitute. 
A lot of questions are being raised. Wheat gluten uh, is wheat gluten. It should be something that, uh, you know, is, is fit for human consumption. So what was wrong with this gluten that it was imported from China for use only in pet food? On April 7th, the FDA's veterinarian Steve Sundloff told CNN that the melamine found in the contaminated wheat gluten from China could actually have been added as a cheap filler. Melamine crystal is a urea-derived synthetic nitrogen product that's been used as a fertilizer. I, I don't understand this story. What works as a fertilizer is not necessarily a good choice as a food additive. For example, urea or urine makes pretty good fertilizer, not such a good substance to add to food. Well, being that we are part of the University of California, Davis, and that our veterinary school uh, here is um, among the world's finest, I hope that someone will send us an email at info at radioparallax.com and let us know, uh, you know what the latest is on this uh, ever-growing scandal. Dr. Sunloff has also been reported as saying that, uh, that melamine is not very toxic as a chemical, and since it was found in some 873 tons of wheat gluten imported from China, the dilution in the vast volumes of pet foods being recalled must be considerable. So perhaps the melamine is a smoking gun, uh, not the primary cause of all these animals getting sick or even dying. Anyway, heck of a story. We need to find out more about it. All right, we have about four minutes left, so let's do four obituaries. We note first the passing of Boris Yeltsin, president of Russia from 1991 to 1999. He was the first democratically elected leader in the country's 1,000-year history. He was also the first to freely relinquish power. By helping to dismantle the totalitarian Soviet Union, Yeltsin changed history and earned worldwide admiration. And although it is Mikhail Gorbachev that gets most of the credit for reforming the Soviet Union, Gorbachev always tried to work within the system. Yeltsin was the guy that gave up on the sluggish Soviet bureaucracy and decided to abandon the Communist Party completely, which he did at its Congress in July of 1990. Yeltsin was determined to break the hold of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union over the Russian people, and he succeeded, earning him a place in the history books. We also note uh, with sadness the passing of the legendary journalist David Halberstam. Halberstam earned a reputation for persistence in reporting back during the Vietnam era. In late 1963, the 29-year-old Saigon correspondent for the New York Times had already earned presidential censure. John F. Kennedy himself has recently suggested to the Times publisher, Harry Luce, that Halberstam be removed from the war beat. The military brass was warning uh, the reporter that he should not pester them for his travel requests, but Halberstam replied that the American public has a right to know what's going on when the U.S. sends its soldiers into combat. This correspondent can highly recommend Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, his 1972 work chronicling how the nation got into the Vietnam quagmire, as well as 1979's The Powers That Be. David Halberstam, a great reporter, he will be missed. We also note the passing in the last week of Jack Valenti. Jack Valenti was Hollywood's top lobbyist in Washington, D.C. He knew his way around the corridors of power. In the 1960s, Jack Valenti was Lyndon Johnson's aide. He was Vice President Lyndon Johnson's aide on November 22, 1963, and remained with LBJ after his ascendancy to the presidency. 
Jack Valenti gave us the movie rating system that uh, still survives today with uh, G, PG, PG-13, and R designations. When uh, Governor Schwarzenegger got inaugurated a few years back, I rode a bicycle down to see the proceedings and, uh, and saw Mr. Jack Valenti walking along toward to, uh, to attend the um, reception that took place after the swearing-in ceremony. There was a couple-second interval where I probably could have asked Jack Valenti a question or two if I'd thought of a good one, but I didn't. And I'm sorry to report that, but uh, said movie producer Steven Spielberg, in a sometimes unreasonable business, Jack Valenti was a giant voice of reason. He was the greatest ambassador Hollywood has ever known, and I will value his wisdom and friendship for all time. With less than a minute to go, I would have to note the passing of one of pop music's most enduring one-hit wonders, Bobby Boris Pickett, passed away last week. Bobby Boris Pickett's dead-on Boris Karloff impression took the Monster Mash to number one when it debuted in 1961. He did it again in August of 1970 and a third time in May of 1973, a record which I believe still stands. And although I really shouldn't admit this, <laughs> this correspondent didn't realize till about 10 years ago that the record did not actually contain the voice of Boris Karloff. We are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Our thanks to our guest today, Dr. Bill Durston. We hope to have him on again. Now stay tuned for KDVS's musical programming, which is bedded today with, appropriately, of course, the Monster Mash. He did the Monster Mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires Get a joke from my electrodes. They did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and Yeah.